I'm glad that you're all here. I'm uh, surprised that you're all here. <laughs> Such a beautiful day. So, but praise God, we're the family of God together to study His Word. And let's just begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for such a wonderful day. We thank you most of all for the mutual salvation that we have through the shed blood of your Son. And today we thank you for our armed forces, that they would purchase us freedom through their sacrifice, that we can come in freedom to worship you and also to learn great things about who you are and what you've done for us through your word. We ask, Heavenly Father, today as we look at this church of Pergamum, that we as the people, your people, would shy away from the sins and to flee from immorality, and that we would learn to be a people that longs to give you honor and glory in our lives. And we ask that you would accomplish that through us. We also pray for Bob as he delivers the message today, and we pray that hearts would be open and regenerate, and it would also edify the bodies, also that we'd be conformed to the image of your Son. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Today, as you can see, we're looking at the church at Pergamum, but I'm always going to review the previous week's church. And so I want to remind you that we had looked, remember, a few weeks ago at the church in Smyrna. And the church in Smyrna, if you recall, it was really commended for being a church that suffered for Christ. And it was commended because it was doctrinally sound and it lived out its doctrine in love and devotion to Christ, even to the point of death. In fact, there was no rebuke, if you recall, against the church at Smyrna. And there was also no correction. But there was a great promise given by Christ. And the promise is recorded in Revelation 2.10 where he said, Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now remember we said Smyrna was known for being faithful to the emperor, uh, even to a fault. But here we have Jesus saying, look, he's the ultimate emperor. He's the ruler of all. And he wants his people to be zealous and faithful to him. That is, trusting in, in the Son, trusting in himself for salvation. And what does he offer? Well, he doesn't have the physical things to offer that the physical ruler namely the emperor had, but he would offer us what? The crown of life. The crown of life being, of course, eternal life. So remember we had talked about the fact that the crown was that which was consisting of life. That only can Christ give. Christ is the only one who can give eternal life. And that's why Jesus, remember in Matthew 10, 20, he says, do not fear he that's man who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's exactly the power that God has. I also remember that we had a couple of things that we had learned from the culture. Smyrna meant bitter. That's what the term meant. In fact, the term is used in the Greek Septuagint translation of the Hebrew. You have the term for myrrh. Okay, well, that was used as an embalming agent. And there was, remember, remember there was many secular historians who had commented on the bitter irony. Here, Smyrna was the most beautiful city in all of Asia Minor, and yet its name meant embalming. And the irony wasn't lost, even on secular historians that said, it's very ironic, such a beautiful city, and yet so many Christians die there. And so remember that. Smyrna was the bitter place for Christians. The world often looks beautiful, but in reality it's a death trap to those who will sacrifice and suffer for the sake of Christ. And that's the way it was in Smyrna. Now, does anybody have any comments or questions about Smyrna before we move on 
to Pergamum. I don't see anybody. Um, well, let's move on to Pergamum. Pergamum actually deals with some similar issues. Oops, I've got to blow up some of my notes here. Bob taught me how to do that the other day, which was nice. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Now, the church at Pergamum, what's interesting is the name itself means citadel. And the reason it was called a citadel is because the town sat up initially on what's called an acropolis, this huge rock. And so it looked like a very defensible position militarily. So the name literally means citadel, and that's where it got its name from. Now, what's very interesting as well is this town was known for its world-class library. In the days that Jesus would have been around, this library flourished to the point where the Egyptians became jealous of it. In Alexandria, Egypt, the Egyptians had the number one library in the world. And the Egyptians became jealous of the library at Pergamum to the point where they would no longer sell papyri, so that that's where you would get your paper from for your books. And most of it came from Egypt. Well, they got jealous of Pergamum's library. They said, well, we're not going to give any more paper, papyri, so you can't have any books. So what ends up happening then at Pergamum is they develop parchment. That's where it comes from. Parchment, of course, is dried animal skin. Yeah, what kind of animal? Sheep, Sheep typically, yeah. They would stretch it out, dry it out. And so that's where the term parchment comes from. It's a Latinized form of Pergamum. But when it comes to Pergamum, what were they most known for? Well, Jesus says in Revelation 2.13, it was the place of Satan's throne. And what we have to do is primarily wrestle with why was Pergamum uniquely the place of Satan's throne? And there's been many scholars who have given different conjectures as to why this was, but I think we can nail it down. More than likely, most scholars are right, I think, in that it was tied to the emperor cult there. But what's interesting at Pergamum, think of a trifecta. Does everybody know what a trifecta is? Three things that all came together that uniquely made Pergamum Satan's throne. The first one was the worship of idols. There was different gods like Zeus, and of course this happened in all of Asia Minor cities, but this one was unique in that this one god in particular, its name was, um, if I can pronounce it, Asclepius. Asclepius was a god that promised immortality. So think about it. This is a god that's uniquely offering eternal life, this false god. Well, what is Jesus, who truly is God, what does he offer? Eternal life, right? Now, what's interesting is Asclepius, the symbol for it and some of the rites surrounding it had to do with snakes, serpents. So, for instance, if you were wounded or you were feeling bad, you were sick or something, you would go through a rite to this god, to Asclepius, in its temple, and you would be in with a bunch of snakes in the temple. And the idea is if these snakes ran over you, you would be healed. Okay, now, we don't have to think too hard to remember that a snake isn't exactly the most Christian symbol. Remember any, everyone in the garden? What happened? Satan was the serpent, Right. So you and I should be dubious of any claim for eternal life that comes from a snake, right? And so that's what you had going on at Pergamum. But alongside that, you also had false teaching in the church itself. And this was the Nicolaitan heresy. The Nicolaitan heresy, we'll get into in depth what it was, but it was contacting demons really through sexual immorality. And it also, they got into offering 
food to idols and engaged in the pagan feast. So you had the church itself then that was compromised, and Satan uses, as we'll show uniquely, sexual sin to destroy God's people. That's what Satan uses. Sexual sin we'll talk about today, and I wish we had more teenagers in here because it shows you how evil sexual sin is and how it destroys the people of God. But the third thing, whoops, I went the wrong way. The third thing that brought about this name for Pergamum, that is Satan's throne, was emperor worship. In the Roman world, the emperor was known as two things. He was called a soter. In Greek, it means he was the savior. How many have heard of soteriology? That's the doctrine of salvation. So one of the terms that was applied to the Caesar was that he was the soter, he was the savior. Well, of course, we only have one savior, that's Jesus Christ. But the Caesar was also called Lord of all. Okay, well, of course, we only have one Lord who was Lord of all, that's Jesus. So do you see the emperor was really a counterfeit? And so all three of these things came together at Pergamum. In fact, the emperor worship is the most significant. Now, why? Well, because Pergamum was the provincial capital of Asia Minor. So they had the power of the sword. You're going to see Jesus saying, no, I ultimately have the power of the sword. So Jesus is going to counter that claim. So the emperor claims to have rule over life and death. It's really Jesus. Now, I want to show you how significant the parallel is between the claims that the emperor made, Emperor Augustus and the following emperors, and the claims of Christ. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. Can I say real yeah, yeah, go ahead. In fact, let's get you on. There you go. Just real briefly, um, the um, place of Satan's throne, Pergamos, yeah. they have that in, in Germany, in a German museum. Have you heard of that? They no. took that Satan's throne and put it in there. No, it's a I huge replica. And I think it's actually the same thing that they got from Pergamon. It's in a German oh, museum. You know, Obama was there when he was did his big... Um, um, speech before he was inaugurated in 2008. He okay. did a tour of that. He modeled Satan's throne at the um, stadium in Denver when he had it behind him, that big stage. That was okay. Satan's throne that he had up there, that Zeus. He okay. modeled it right after that thing. Yeah. Now, let me just explain what Rich is referring to is some people think that the citadel look behind Pergamum, it looked like a throne itself, the very structure of the city. Um, but that's debatable. I think more than likely... What John is driving at here is the false claims of the emperor because there's two claims that the emperor was making that directly was a a challenge to Jesus Christ. One is that he's Savior and the other is that he's Lord. So in other words, I don't think it's the physical look of the city. I don't think that's why Jesus called it Satan's throne. I think it's in particular the emperor worship that was headquartered there. Does that make sense? So in other words, there's some debate as to whether there was an actual physical thing that was Satan. Nobody's ever come up with anything that, well, this was Satan's throne. Um, there was nothing like that in any of the temples or anything like that. The temples were all given to these other gods, and none of them were dedicated to Satan. So um, that's, I don't know if that helps you at all. But the one reason why some people thought Pergamon was called Satan's throne is because the very look of the city, the citadel look, it's up on a hill initially, it looked like a throne. But I, I just I don't give that much merit. And we'll, we'll talk more about it. Now, everybody, have you turned your Bibles to Luke 2, 10 through 14? What's interesting here is you have the birth narrative 
And this is the Lord of all who's being birthed, Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. And remember, you have the shepherds out in the hills, and the angel comes to them. It says in verse 10, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now let me stop there. Notice the term good news. Good news there is euangelion. That's our term for gospel. So the good news was that the Lord of all, this little baby is going to be born in a manger. Augustus, the Caesar, he had made a proclamation that once a year, the whole Roman world was to celebrate Caesar's birth. And in fact, that proclamation, he said, was an euangelion. It was good news. And so do you see how the Caesar had a false gospel? The good news to the pagan Roman world was that Caesar was born and he gave peace to all. Well, in that milieu then, God sends not a powerful man with a huge army. He sends a baby that comes to suffer and die for the sake of sin. And he is actually Lord of all. Do you see the great contradiction between the two? Now, let's go on. In verse 11, it says, For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, what did, let me stop there. What did the pagans do? They celebrated Caesar as Savior, Soter, and Lord, Kurios. But who actually is Lord and Savior? It's this little baby born in the manger. Verse 12, it says, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, it says, There appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and an earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Think about this. In the pagan world, they had a culture where in all the cities that the Romans could make this happen, they would have choirs of people that would sing praises to the Caesar as being both Savior and Lord. Well, God had no one on the planet to do it, so what does he do? He sends the angels to do it. The angels are worshiping this little baby because he ultimately in the manger is Savior and Lord of all. And so in a sense, uh, Luke chapter 2 was a wonderful polemic against Caesar worship. And it shows you kind of what the issues were. No, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. So emperor worship, again, is a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit where Caesar is pretending to be both Lord and Savior. And you know what? I think we do see that today. Government is God now. That's the Marxist agenda, Right? The book of Revelation is all about Jesus Christ returning to be ruler of the world. And we're going to have a government that will be perfect in every way. That's what Revelation 19 on is all about. He comes back. And this little baby who was in the manger shows that he really is Lord and Savior. And in fact, he is the all-powerful one. Okay, now let's move on then. We want to see that Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 it says, and to the angel, remember that was the human messenger, the angelos, the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, remember, Pergamum is where? Well, Pergamum is the headquarters of the province of Asia Minor. And so because of that, the proconsul, that's the leadership that the Romans allowed to rule, 
They had the right to the sword. So think about if you're a Christian living in Pergamum, your life hung in the balance with the government officials there. They could put you to death, and they often did. In fact, Antipas, we'll talk about him in just a moment, he was one Christian that was martyred there. So what Jesus does here is he reminds, ultimately, he's the one with the sharp two-edged sword. It may look like the human government has it, but ultimately, he's the one who has it. Now, what's beautiful is the book of Isaiah is littered with this imagery of Jesus having a sword. Let me show you one example. Isaiah 49.2. This is Yahweh speaking of his suffering servant, but his suffering servant isn't just a servant who's going to shed his blood to atone for sinners, although certainly that's the center point. But he's also a coming king who's going to be used as a weapon by Yahweh to subdue the world. And we see that in Isaiah 49, verse 2. It says, he, that's Yahweh, has made my mouth, this is the Messiah, like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hid me in his quiver. So what's so beautiful is throughout the book of Isaiah, there's this image where the Messiah has the power of the sword. And as we're going to see here in just a moment in Isaiah 11, that power is depicted as coming from his mouth. In fact, who had um, Isaiah 11 for? Was that Noel? Noel in the back. Listen to Isaiah. In fact, turn your Bibles, everyone, if you would, to Isaiah 11.4. And Noel, hold on just a minute before. Um, let's let everybody turn to that. I want everybody to see it. Remember in Isaiah 11, this is a passage about the branch, the branch that would come from David, but he was also the root of David. So this branch that's being depicted in Isaiah 11 is the one who comes from David's lineage, but he's also the originator of David's lineage. And that shows you both his humanity, of course, and his deity. Well, in Isaiah 11.4, listen to the language about his mouth. Go ahead, Noel. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Oops, we just lost you. Read that last portion over. Do it over? There. No, just the last portion. It's great. And, the and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. So do you hear that? The, he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he's going to slay the wicked. Word for word, that is taken from the Septuagint of that passage of Isaiah 11.4, and it's applied to the destruction of Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. How does this Jesus destroy the Antichrist? Does he have to do it with naval bombardment? with an invasion force? Does he have to do with B-52 strikes? No. He does it by merely the power of his mouth. So this Jesus is Lord of all. He had the power to create all things through the spoken word, and he has the power to judge his enemies in a likewise manner. In fact, we'll see, and I'll just read this to you. You can jot this down. Revelation 19.15, this is Jesus' return. Revelation 19.15, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So all of this language shows us that Jesus is Lord. He is the one who ultimately has the power that we should fear 
not any human government. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, I had mentioned in one of our applications that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. And the reason why that is, is because you will always want to please the one you fear. And that means if you fear God, how, according to Hebrews 11:6, is the only way that you can please him? By faith in the Son. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if you fear God, you're going to come to faith in the Son. But if you fear man, you're going to be a man-pleaser, and that will lead you away from messianic salvation. So do you see why Jesus is so critical that he shows these Christians who are suffering here that he is ultimately the one who has the two-edged sword? All right. Now, notice also, though, he commends them. Even though they were suffering, he says, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Remember the name. He says, you hold fast my name. A name in the ancient Near East wasn't just something that the parents thought sounded nice. Or, you know, I didn't want to send my boy out to school having a name like that because he'd have kick me put on his back. That's not how these people decided names. They decided names because the name represented the character and all that that person was. Okay? My dad liked our names because they were short. (laughs) Right? He didn't think too much of it. That's okay. But back then, the name meant everything. Well, the name of Christ represents his what? His person and work. And so, in a sense, the gospel is wrapped up in the name of Jesus. His name represents who he is and what he's done. His character. So if you hold fast to his name, you hold fast to the gospel itself. And then that's further reinforced where he says, and I d- he, they did not deny my faith. My faith, there's two elements to that. It's not just personal faith in Jesus Christ, although that's certainly central, but it's also the doctrine that Christ teaches. It's the doctrines about Christ. So it's both and. It's both the doctrines of Christ and it's personal faith in him because without the doctrines of Christ, how would you know who to trust in? Who is this Jesus that you should believe in? You know, down my road, I've mentioned this before, there's a Jesus, a Jesus, a, a Spanish fellow, uh, probably from Mexico, I think. I haven't met him that much. I've just talked to him a few times, but his name is Jesus. Will trusting in his name save anyone? Of course not. So we have doctrine revealed in Scripture that reveals who this Jesus is, his eternality, the fact that he's truly man, truly God, all those things. So all of those things were held on to by those at Pergamum. In fact, it says, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. Antipas, we don't know who it is, but he was martyred for the sake of Christ. But what's so beautiful to me is he, Jesus calls him my faithful one. Isn't that beautiful? Now, why that's so significant or should be to us is in Revelation 1.5, the faithful one is uniquely Jesus. Jesus is uniquely the faithful one. But what's so beautiful is he shares that title now with one of his own. Why? Not because Antipas was some superstar or better than any other Christian, but it's because Antipas was with Christ. And so if you attack Antipas, a Christian, or any of us, it's an attack on Jesus Christ himself. So this is why, remember in Acts chapter 9, you have Saul, he's walking on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden he sees the brilliant light, Jesus Christ and his resurrection, And Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? 
Notice he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? The point is, an attack on the church is an attack on Christ himself. And that's why we have the imagery of the body. So think about an attack on Antipas is an attack against Jesus' hand. It's part of his body. I don't know. know, Pick any part. An attack against you is an attack on the body of Christ. That's the imagery. And so I think it's very moving also. Remember in Acts 655, you have Stephen being stoned. And he's near death, and it says that he looked into the heavens, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, Bob has mentioned numerous times Psalm 110. Psalm 110 talks about how Christ is to be seated at the right hand of the Father. But in this particular incident, as Stephen is being stoned, Christ is depicted as standing. Standing because one of his own, one of his own body is being martyred. It's very, very touching. And so Jesus views the death of his own as very precious. In fact, remember Psalm 116, I think it's verse, uh, I think I wrote it down here. Yeah, 116, 15, remember God says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. How precious is the body of Christ? And dear ones, you and I were given this message so that we know that Jesus, even in the dark times that we live in where the government is going to be become I think, more unfriendly to us, we know that Jesus is the ultimate authority. These are great promises indeed. But even though he says these great things about Pergamum, he is not entirely happy with them. He has to rebuke them for their Nicolaitan heresy. Revelation two fourteen through 15, he goes on to say, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what I have highlighted red. What was this teaching of Balaam? Well, notice we're given a clue in this text itself. One thing that they did was that they were eating things sacrificed to idols. Notice that right here. Sorry, I'm having a hard time moving my mouse here. We need a pulpit like uh, Skip Russell made. (laughs) Get all sorts of room on there. They were eating things sacrificed to idols, and they were committing acts of immorality. Of course, that's sexual sin. The The term there was pornuo, or we get our term for pornography. Okay? Now, what we want to do, though, is reconstruct what exactly was Balaam all about. Well, who had the Numbers chapter 25 passage? Oh, Steve did. We get the microphone to him. Everyone turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. And as you're turning there, before Steve says the, the three verses, let me just reconstruct the situation. You had this false prophet, Balaam. God did use him to speak through him, but it was despite Balaam. Balaam was... A heretic. He taught evil doctrines. Balaam was hired by Balak, this Moabite king, to curse Israel. But God would not allow Israel to be cursed. They are, they are his blessed ones, his chosen ones. And so what Balaam figured out was the only way to bring a curse upon Israel was if they brought it upon themselves through sexual immorality. So what he did is he must have taught Balak to say, hey, what you do is you take your Moabite women who obviously go after false gods like Chemosh, bring the women in front of the Israelite men, and the Israelite men 
through sexual immorality will become one with them and they'll start serving the false gods of Moab. That's the way you bring a curse upon the people. And so this is exactly what's being described here in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. So go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I've got the ESV. Um, yeah. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Perfect. Thank you. So God is angry. Why? Because through the Moabite women, the Israelites end up yoking themselves, Steve read, to the false god of Baal. Okay, now remember, Baal is a false god that's promising fertility. In other words, if you want a bumper crop, you go to Baal. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But who ultimately is the one who gives us a bumper crop? Well, it's Yahweh. God is the one who not only saves us, but he also provides for us. So this is a direct attack against the sufficiency of God. All right. Now, what's interesting is when I won't have you uh, read this, but just jot down Numbers 31:16. Listen to what it says. I'm just going to give you further ammunition that yes, Balaam really did incite this stumble. Numbers 31:16. It says, "Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord." Now, here's the point. Balaam was recorded there in Numbers 31 as being the one who counseled Balak. And what was his counsel? Well, putting it together, it was to put the Moabite women in front of the Israelites to make them stumble. Now, what's interesting then is when you look at the teaching of Balaam, there's two things that go hand in hand. Notice the correlation between, again, the food that's sacrificed to idols or eating things sacrificed to idols and the immorality. Okay, they both go hand in hand. Think about this term, to eat things sacrificed to idols. What that meant in the day wasn't just that you saw meat that was in the marketplace, and it may or may not have been sacrificed to idols at the pagan feast. Specifically, what's in mind at Pergamum is that they were engaged in the pagan feast. And so they were actually partaking in the table of demons. So here... On Sunday, as it were, they would go and partake in the Supper of the Lord. But then they had the audacity to share also in the Supper of a demon. And what I'm going to show you here in just a moment is that immorality, sexual immorality in particular, is designed to yoke people to demonic bondage. The demons are behind sexual immorality. Now, why? Well, think about Baal. Baal is this false god that the Canaanites developed... And the idea behind Baal was that he was the one who would bring fertility upon your land. Well, Baal had a female consort, his female equal, as it were, Asherah. And so the idea was Baal and Asherah, if the male and the female would come together, these god and goddess, then what would happen is you would have, through relations between those two, you would bring fertility to the land. So what the Canaanites taught and what the Moabites were teaching, because they had very similar doctrines with Chemosh, was that you could incite this relationship between Baal and Asherah by having temple prostitutes. And so through sexual immorality then, what you were doing is you're inciting the gods to bring fertility to your land. But all the while, who was really behind Baal? Who was really behind Asherah? Satan and the demons. 
right? It's demonic. Now, in fact, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what Paul says. We're going to talk, first of all, about eating things sacrificed to idols at the pagan feast. That's what they were doing at Pergamum. Listen to what Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 through 21. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 21, Paul says, What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? In verse 20 he says, No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now listen to verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's one or the other. Now what's interesting is I'm going to show you in just a couple slides, the same is true with sexual immorality. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I are one in his body. Not mystically, but positionally. Because you and I are in the realm of the spirit, which is the church, which is depicted as the body, we are one with Christ. In sexual immorality, we become one with the prostitute or what's behind the prostitute, the demonic realm. It's one or the other. You're going to be one with the Lord or you're going to be one with the demonic realm. That's it. Yeah, Floyd, hold on one second. We'll get the microphone over there. Isn't that the same with any sin? You become one with Satan when you sin? Yeah, you know... In a, um, sen- in a sense, you are. You, it you, is. You're submitting, right. to, you're submitting to the flesh. You're submitting to Satan's will. Uh, as opposed to God's will and dying to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Every sin ultimately originates from Satan and his minion. Yeah, but there's uh, what I'll show you is there's something in particularly that in particular I should say. Yeah, but there's something. What I'll show you from First Corinthians is that there's something in particular about sexual sin because the body is designed by God to be the temple of the Spirit. And it always belongs to the one that... You, remember Genesis 2.24, you become one flesh with your mate, right? So you and I have become one with Christ through the resurrection. It's a spiritual imagery in his body. But in sexual immorality, your body now is given over. So the body that belongs to Christ is now being shared. And Paul's very angry about that. How can your body that's designed for resurrection, that belongs to the body of Christ, how can it now be shared in immorality? So there's something in particular that's grievous, I think, about sexual immorality, although all sin, as you said, kills, destroys, and ultimately is from Satan. Yep. Yeah, so with that, then, here's the issue that I want you to think about. Balaam is teaching, then, these Israelites to fall because of sexual immorality, and that's exactly what's going on in Pergamum. Why? Well, think about, at Pergamum, one thing that you would want to do is somehow blend in with the rest of society, because these are the people who are going to put you to death. And so you think about these Christians, these false teachers are saying, well, why don't we enter into this type of sin? It, it feels good, and we blend in with the culture. The pagans aren't going to be angry with us. We're going to fit in. We're not going to be persecuted nearly as much. That was one of the draws of the Nicolaitan heresy, that they blend in with the rest of the culture. But what Jesus is pointing out is that it's immorality that brings about destruction. Now, I think it's very fitting that, remember Balaam's name? 
comes from Bella, which means literally a swallower up or a destroyer. Am is people. So Balaam meant the destruction or destroyer of the people. And Nicolaidon came from Nicol, which was conquer, and Laos, which is for the people. So he was the conqueror of the people. So it's very fitting that sexual immorality was named by both Balaam and Nicolaidon because it has to do with destruction of God's people. That's what it leads to. Let me talk a little bit about sexual immorality and how it does destroy the people of God. I'm going to go to the book of Jude here for just a minute. And I remember in Jude, Jude is dealing with the same opposition that Peter's dealing with in 2 Peter. And that was there was false teachers who were saying, this Jesus isn't coming back. We can live any way we want. And they were teaching a licentious and immoral lifestyle. You can live any way you want. There's no judgment coming. And so what Jude has to do is to say about these teachers, they came in unnoticed and they are going towards destruction. And then he gives us a bunch of examples of those who through sexual immorality ended up going to destruction. So listen to what he says. Jude 1, 6 through 7 and verse 11. Jude says, and angels, this is the first example, angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So, first of all, let's begin with the angels who did not keep their own domain. What angels is Jude referring to? Well, he's referring to these angels that we see in Genesis 6, left their proper domain, and they end up being in relations with physical women. Now, I know that that's distasteful to many, but I want to show you this is the biblical worldview. Bob has already hit this when we were in our discussions in 1 Peter 3. But notice we have proof here in Jude 7. Notice it says, The angels did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they what? In the same way. The term there in the Greek is homios, meaning similar, same. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in what? It says gross immorality. Now, remember I talked about the term for immorality, pornuo, the verb? This is just an augmented form of that, ek pornuo. It just has a preposition saying it's really bad. All right? It's really bad, illicit sexual relation. That's what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. So here's the point. Does that not then prove if Sodom and Gomorrah was engaged in sexual immorality and it was just the same as the angels, well, then the angels were engaged in sexual immorality. So that's not Eric Daum or Bob DeWay teaching it. It's what? It's the word of God. We have exegetical proof that that is exactly what happened in Genesis 6. So let's reconstruct the issue. Here in Genesis 6, you have these angels who leave their proper abode and they go to be with women and they create a race of Nephilim. And God is so disgusted 
and he must restrain them, what does he do? He sends the flood to wipe them out, and he sends the Israelites later to kill all the Canaanites and the remnants that would come from these Nephilim. So God both restrains them and ends up removing them. However, people are not satisfied with that. They love tangible contact with them. And so what do these people do throughout generations? They build their pantheon of the gods. Whether it's Baal, whether it's Asherah, whether it's, uh, there's one called Horus that the Egyptians had. Whether it's, um, we had one, remember Aphrodite? We had, um, what was the one that we looked at a while ago? Oh, Artemis, the one from Ephesus, Artemis. All these gods that are false have temple prostitutes. Why? Because if you get into contact with them, you're coming into contact with the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. And that's what mankind longs for. That's what's behind it. And so that's ultimately what's behind sexual immorality. In fact, Bob, you had mentioned in some of your research that when you look throughout the different cultures of the world, you see that there's a lot of similarities between the gods, don't you? Let's get the microphone to Bob. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that fact that if you look at some of these ancient pagan religions, even ones that had no contact with each other, yes, they have some of these same uh, idols, descriptions, yes. beliefs, practices. This was so prevalent that it deceived Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, yeah. the deaf psychiatrist, who, uh, because, and that caused him to posit this, the idea of the cosmic unconscious. Yeah. He had mental patients who were delusional, yeah. and they, in their altered state, would see certain things. And Jung, having been educated, realized that what they were seeing were these very things described in ancient religions. And so Jung came to the conclusion that there's this cosmic mind of the universe that we're hooked into that has a collective memory that goes all the way back to this uh, ancient world of the pagan idolaters. There's another explanation. That's right. These demons and fallen angels are real. Amen. And they saw the same things and thereby described them the same way. Exactly. And then when these patients were delusional, they were just being attacked by demons that still exist. That's exactly right. That are uh, in their realm of the spirit world. Yeah. And consequently, (coughs) the best thing we can do is not interact directly with the spirits. Right. See, another thing that you find interesting when you study this is that all of the tribal nature religions, polytheistic religions, have a class of people who are better than ordinary people at interacting with the spirit world. Right. And in general, we call those shamans. Yes. Okay. So there are shamans. Now, I wrote an article over 10 years ago about how I used to have experience with 
deliverance ministry and right. demon and manifestation. I get every week emails from people that find the article, read the first page, don't read any more, <laughs> and want me to cast the demons either out of them, their wife, or their kid. Right, right. And they've offered even to fly me out or to fly into Minneapolis so I can get the demons out. Right. <laughs> and then I have to interact with every one of these. They never finish reading the article. <laughs> So why I got out of that? Because people like Bob Larson are doing this for three thousand dollars an hour. Wow! Wow! Okay. Uh, so That's no, what they say. They get rich on yeah, it. Yeah. Do not interact with the spirits. Exactly. If once you get these spirits manifesting, they're real. That's they're doing right. these various things. This will go on and on and on, and you always need a shaman. Right. You always need another shaman, and you never get done with it. What you should do if you're attacked by a messenger from Satan, Second Corinthians 12, is like Paul, appeal to God. He's providentially in control. He's in charge, including the demons. Well, the answer I get back is, well, it doesn't work. Well, what do you mean it doesn't work? Well, the demons don't go away. Well, the messenger of Satan didn't go away for Paul either. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, did Paul say, it didn't work, I won't pray anymore? Right. He, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. Satan can do nothing to us but what God allows. allows. And Amen. so then I wrote a series of articles on the providential worldview. Right, now, Bob, one of the passages that proves that is in Jude. Now, I had to cut out that because of the ellipsis here just to yeah. fit everything in. But let me yeah. just add to that this passage that talks about it. One of the things that these false teachers were doing is it says, but when Michael the archangel, oh, I'm sorry, let me back up, verse 8, it says, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Does everybody see that in Jude 8? Mm-hmm. So what were the false teachers doing? They're blaspheming the angels, and they're bossing them around. And what Bob is rightly pointing out is, we can go to God in prayer. Why? Because God is the one who's providentially in control of what he does with his angels or demons, you and I have no business entering into that realm. In fact, in the very next verse, it says the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yeah, exactly. So there is the doctrine of providence. So then now I get pushback from people claiming I'm not really helping people. In other words, the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, the throne of grace, the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the saints, it's all inadequate. We need somebody to talk to demons. (laughs) Shuffle these demons around and everything will be okay. And my answer is, once you start doing that, there'll be no end to it. That's right. And I'm not denying the reality of the demons. See, the problem is a lot of... Evangelicalism has said, well, that just doesn't exist. Yeah. Yep. But also in Ephesians, they had the same concern. That's right. Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians were in Asia that Minor. region. Exactly. And it said that we're seated in Christ in the heavenlies above all authority and power. And that's why we have to stand firm in the armor in Ephesians 6. Which I know, is which is the gospel. But Amen. these people read that and say, <laughs> see, we're above that, so we should be able to take these demons and rearrange them and do stuff with exactly. them. Exactly. That's I mean, not... so, so in one case, they're wanting to have temple prostitutes yes. to commune with demons. In another one, they want to go directly to the demons. Exactly. Even if it's negative, the demons love the attention. That's right. Yeah. So 
go to God yes. and resist the devil. In a sense, you don't believe his attacks against the gospel and the forgiveness of sins Amen. and the cross and the blood of Jesus. Don't believe those lies. Believe the gospel. Believe what God has done for you. Amen. And God will take care of that. And Satan and his demons can do nothing more to you than what they did to Paul, which Amen. was make him dependent on God's grace. Amen. Well said. Thank you. Yeah, well said. Now, yeah, thank you, Bob. That was wonderful. Um, one, one thing I want to add then with this, what happens is these angels then that did all of this damage through sexual immorality and bringing people to the temple prostitutes, the Nephilim, remember in Genesis 6, God wipes them out and eradicates them. Well, all the angels that had left their abode to do that, they're locked away in the abyss. Okay, so think about it. There's no tangible contact with them anymore. You can't contact them. Physically in Genesis 6, you could. Now you cannot. So the longing to do so is what led to these temple prostitutes. However, let me give you a foreshadowing. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9 because these demons that are locked away in Revelation chapter 9 are going to be let out of the abyss. So what's now not tangible because God has locked them away, when you and I are removed from the earth in the rapture, God will send them these powerful spirits and in fact, they'll do great damage to people, but they won't kill them. Notice what it says here in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. We'll start there. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to them, or to him. So he has the authority over the bottomless pit where these angels were locked away. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key, oops, did I duplicate that, was, of the pit was given to him. Then out of the smoke came locusts up from the earth, and the power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass or the earth nor any green thing nor any tree, but only men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So remember, there are going to be believers who come to faith in Jesus, during the tribulation period, and they will be sealed, right? And in verse 5 it says, And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Now, we, there's a lot more we can get into, but go down to verse 10 and to verse 11. This is more description of them. It says, They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men. For five months. Now, let's stop there. For many generations, we've had Bible teachers saying, well, these scorpions or these things, they must be Apache helicopters or they have to be this or that. No, these are simply what they are. They're demons that are let out of the abyss. Now, what's very interesting is notice what it says in verse 11. In verse 11, it goes on to say, they have a king over them. The angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. What does Abaddon mean in Hebrew? Destruction. Well, what was Balaam's name? What did that mean? Destroyer. Destroyer of the people. Okay, now notice what else it says. In the Greek, he was the name Apollyon. Apollyon, what does it mean? It means destroyer. What does Nicolaidon's name mean? Conqueror of the people. Do you see the serious nature of sexual immorality? When we become yoked in immorality, 
it is being yoked to the scheme of the demonic realm. And that's why Paul points this out, for instance. Let me read 1 Corinthians 6. I don't have a lot of time with this passage, but let me give you the basic gist of 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is dealing with Corinthians who have an, what's called an overrealized eschatology. Now, here's what this means. They think that they are the spiritual ones. And being spiritual ones, they have arrived, as it were, in heaven. In fact, remember they were denying the resurrection to the point where Paul has to labor in 1 Corinthians 15, no, there is a resurrection. So they thought this was it. And because this was it, they could live any way they wanted with their physical body. Their physical body didn't matter. And Paul has to say to them, hogwash, your body belongs to the Lord. And you have not reached the eschaton yet. Your body matters because it's going to be raised from the dead. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he says that we have been united with Christ in the resurrection. And then in verse 15... And through verse 20, let me read it. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So let's stop there. The Corinthians are going to the temple prostitutes. And they're becoming one with the prostitute, which is linking them to what? To the demonic realm. Why do they think that that's okay? Because they're spiritual. Their physical body doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because they don't believe there's anything yet to come. This is why eschatology matters. Paul is to say, no, there's a resurrection and all these other things to come, right? Now he continues. He says, may it never be. Shall we make members of Christ to be members of a prostitute? May Godoita. May it never be. The most emphatic way you can deny that. He says, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Now, let me stop there. You and I are one, not in a mystical union, But positionally so, we are one with Jesus Christ through the resurrection. We are in his body. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul labors the point that we're all part of the body of Christ. Remember, the head cannot say to the foot or the hand, I have no need of you. The whole body matters. But you can't take something that belongs to the Lord and unite it to a prostitute. And ultimately, what's behind the prostitute is a demon. It belongs to Christ. And then he cites here Genesis 2.24. He says, for he says... The two shall become one flesh. So let's stop there. When husband and wife come together, they become one. So if you're one with Christ because of his finished work, why would you want to then separate and become one with a prostitute in sexual immorality and therefore a demon? That's the issue. Yeah, we got a couple here. Aside from that, you have psychological issues, disease, and ultimately abortion, all due to sexual immorality. Amen. Yep, you you can't argue with that. So in one sense, they're what, somehow spiritually liberated from God? I'm sorry, the the Corinthians were thinking they were spiritually liberated from God? And not accountable because they're, they're almost a higher order... Yeah, they were boasting in being the spiritual ones, these Corinthians. So they thought that the physical body didn't really matter. They were living what they thought was, you and I believe in the eschatological age, meaning the age to come where we're going to have a resurrection, a perfect perfect kingdom with Christ, etc. That's what the Bible teaches. But they thought this was all there was. And so if there is no resurrection, they were the spiritual ones. Their body didn't matter. They could do anything they wanted with them. And so, therefore, they would take their body and unite it to a temple prostitute. And what's the difference? It's only the physical body. And after all, it's the spirit that matters. Paul is saying hogwash. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our bodies belong to him. Our bodies are heading towards resurrection. And so they belong to the resurrection sphere, 
where life now happens in the sphere of the Spirit. In fact, notice he goes on to say, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. That is literally, I think, should be capitalized, one spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit. In the Spirit, the sphere of the Spirit, think of this room as the sphere of the Spirit. Just think of it conceptually. It is the sphere in which the body of Christ operates. So you and I are baptized into the sphere of the Spirit. Where, where is the sphere of the Spirit? Well, that's the body of Christ. But if you're one with the body of Christ, why would you become one with the body of a prostitute and therefore a demon? That's the issue, yeah. But this woman doesn't need to be a hooker, does she? I mean, no, she could be exactly. anybody besides your wife. <laughs> no, that's exactly. See, no, it's a, good, it's a good it's question. Not, it's, yeah, let's get down to brass tacks here. Yeah, so exactly. Just, well said. Yeah, I, this is their specific issue, but right. We have to broaden it out and say it applies to any immorality. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The issue of um, concubines and multiple wives and polygamy then for the Old Testament? Yeah, the Old Testament, a great question. Think about this. Um, it's a, it deserves a longer answer than this, but God designs in Genesis 2.24 that we just have here that the two would become one flesh. Notice the two. Early on in Genesis chapter 4, remember you have this man named Lamech? Lamech, okay, first of all, let's back up. Cain ends up murdering his brother, and he's concerned. He goes out, and God says, if anyone hurts you, Vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Well, the mech comes along in chapter 4, and he says, if anyone hurts me, I'll take vengeance 70 times 7 or 77-fold. The point is he's exceeding what God has allowed. There's sin. Okay? But then notice the mech said that to his multiple wives. That's the narrator's way of showing you that now the two becoming one flesh is being exceeded by this wicked generation. So... Right there, Lamech is showing you that, no, God's plan of two people, man, female, coming together, becoming one flesh, is being distorted. Well, two chapters later, you have the flood. So with the issue with concubines then, and like David having multiple wives, etc., the kings, it's something that God allowed because of hardness of heart. So, for instance, let's say God said, that's it, it's all done tomorrow. And he did that on December 3rd, year 1455 B.C., Well, think about all of the Israelite men who had multiple wives. They'd have to choose. Let's say they had six wives. Five of them would be kicked out and have nothing. Okay? So the point being is that it was a protection of these women because you only had property rights and you only had a way of making money by being with the men. And so so God's word stands that it's immoral, but he allows, like even slavery, he allowed slavery even in that time, why? Because if you say that's it, slavery's over, you have all these people who are left destitute. Okay, so it's an accommodation to a hardness of heart rather than a specific... Um, if he says, thou shall not do that anymore, well, that's already been stated. They're doing it, right? The two shall become one flesh. That's God's plan. And it's reiterated by Christ in Matthew 19. So, yeah, does that help? Um, it, it helps. I understand that part. I'm just... I guess I'm struggling with the strong language of the temple prostitutes versus that type of sexual immorality. Is there some distinction within Scripture between those kinds of sexually immoral behaviors? That's a great question. In fact, I was going to get into this. We'll have to maybe finish this another time. But um, notice it says flee immorality, and it talks about the immoral man. 
The term for immorality there is, again, pornea. That's where, again, where we get our term pornography. In this instance, it's, of course, being used with the temple prostitutes, but it exceeds that. It's used elsewhere for sexual immorality. It may be adultery. It may be fornication, anything like that. And we have examples throughout the New Testament. In fact, notice where it says, but the immoral man. That is a present active participle of pornuo. The present active is important because the present tense means it's something that characterizes the man. So this man then is characterized by a life where he's engaged in sexual immorality or the woman. Okay, now what does that look like? It's not just temple prostitutes. It exceeds that. We know that from Scripture. Okay, so again, what Paul is showing you at the bottom line, notice he says, for you've been bought with a price. Christ purchased purchased you with his blood. You belong to him. Your body belongs to him. That's why he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But when you and I in sexual immorality join with another, our body becomes one with them. And he says, no, no, you can't do that. It belongs to him. You can't use it for immorality. Why can you not use it for immorality? Because he purchased you with a price. In fact, the price that I think he's referring to there may be the bride price, the mohair. The price that was paid, Jesus Christ being the groom to purchase his bride. So what are you and I to do? Then we're to be faithful even in the body. The body matters. It belongs to Christ. Everything about us belongs to him. Therefore, even the body should be used in a way that's pleasing to him. That's the idea that Paul is driving at. Okay, now let me just leave you with this, and we'll finish the last slide when we come back next week. Notice this. This is a pillar from Pergamum. Notice what's on that pillar is a bunch of serpents. That was from their false god, Asclepius. Now, Asclepius, again, was promising what? Immortality. The church is teaching immorality, and you have the Roman emperor who's a false Christ, false savior, that's what the, perg- the people at Pergamon are dealing with. Yeah, Dana, we got to get a thing back there for you. The mic. Yeah, <laughs> go deep. <laughs> and we'll close after this. Just to show you how much paganism permeates our culture, yet today the, the medical profession uses the symbol of the caduceus, the, the exactly. snake entwined around the pole, which is a symbol of, a, of Asclepius, the, the pagan god who was believed to be the healer. That's so, right. Even to this day. Hippocrates, exactly. The, everybody's heard of the Hippocratic Oath. Well, that comes from a man who came from Pergamum. That's where the medical profession is. And you're rightly pointing out the serpent. That's the medical profession symbol is the serpent. It comes from there. But it just shows you that the false way of bringing immortality came from man, but Jesus Christ is the one who offers it. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that through you alone that we have immortality. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us in this fight against sexual immorality and that by your spirit we would refrain from these things and that we would honor you in the body until you come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.